Hello, welcome to the hot seat. I'm here with Professor Tony Travers. Welcome, Tony. We're here to talk about the recent spending review. So, uh, would you give us a brief introduction to this spending review? Well, it's worth remembering that this spending review is only for one year, 2015-16. Uh, the previous one, which was in 2010, covered the four years up to the end of 2014-15. So this one rather awkward year hanging off the end of it before the general election, uh, or just in the, actually immediately after the general election, to be precise. And so what's happened here is that uh, George Osborne has given us one year's spending figures for 2015-16, but therefore the certainty that there will be another spending review uh, in October 2015, after the next election. Because it's just for this one year after the general election, though, of course, it is being set now, this will have an enormously political impact in the sense that he's saying to the Labour Party here, this is what we would do, respond to that. Would you spend less? Would you spend more? Where would you move your spending? Would you put taxes up? All of that. So it's a, it's a more political spending review than the earlier one. So for, first of all, what about the public finances? Have we learned anything significant this week with relatively small amounts of cuts? But before we come on to the politics, what are the economics of it? Well, we knew all we needed to know, in a sense, for this spending review uh, at the time of the budget, recent, a, few, a couple of months ago now, when uh, George Osborne uh, set out the public finances. And broadly, what, we, what he said is what we knew, which was he was not going to eradicate the UK's deficit by 2015, as he'd originally hoped to. It's now clear the deficit will continue at least till 2017-18 or 2018-19, and there are those who think it might last longer than that. So long as that is the case and he or the Conservative part of the government are in office, I think it's likely that they'll go on bearing down on the deficit, and that means that austerity, as we've come to call it, will last at least until 2017-18 unless there's a change of government, and even then, frankly, I wouldn't bet on it changing radically. So it is perhaps primarily a political spending review about setting traps for the Labour Party. So how well has Osborne set those traps, and how well have Labour done at avoiding them? I mean, it's hard to exaggerate how difficult a problem this is for the Labour Party, because they're always under the pressure of having to decide... You know, do we simply accept everything that George Osborne has done up till now and then say we'd do something differently after we took office? Or do they criticise it as they go along but then eventually get round to say, well, we'll have to just bank that and start again? And really what they've done is the latter, which is to criticise everything the government does but then a little time after say, well, you know, we'll have to start where we are. And in effect, they're accepting almost all the reductions in spending that the government has put in place. Indeed, if you look at the complex issue that we'll discuss more in a minute, no doubt, about ring fencing, you know, by sustaining the ring fences around some services and allowing others to be cut much harder, you know, again, Osborne is tempting Ed Balls into saying, well, we do something similar. And if he does, then all of this is locked in place, you know, whoever wins the next election for years into the future, when well beyond 2015-16. So I think Labour's in a difficult position. Osborne has the enormous benefit of being in office and dictating the terms of trade. So let's talk about ring fencing then. Uh, the international development budget has risen, it's ring fenced. Justice has been cut by about 10% in the, in the spending review. 
is there likely to be an entering fencing? I mean, it's remarkable in a way that none of the other ministers have called for an entering fencing. Are we, uh, the NHS budget is looking to rise by about 0.1%. So is ring fencing here to stay? And what pressure are both parties under to keep to it or move away from it? Ring fencing is certainly here to stay up to the end of 2015-16. It's very, very clear in the spending review that's just been announced. The NHS, as you say, is being ring-fenced. Most of schools is being ring-fenced. International development. And, although it's never talked about in this way, a great chunk of the welfare budget. Now, the welfare budget was actually discussed in the spending review in terms of uh, the Conservatives getting into a position that's not so far from the one Labour had adopted a bit earlier, of saying, well, there are parts of the welfare budget we will cap and, and stop rising. But even there, uh, the present government wants to sustain uh, protection for pensioners and job seekers' allowance. So, in fact, you know, that's 100 billion of the 200 and odd billion welfare budget also ring fenced. And there's no suggestion from the present government they'll move away from that. And that has the impact inevitably that all other parts of public expenditure have to fall disproportionately. And, you know, one of the things that Balls has to decide is would he really say he'd get rid of the NHS ring fence? Because opinion polling, very clear opinion polling from YouGov and others, Mori, shows absolutely that the public, when asked, says we would rather have the NHS holy protector, or as near as holy protected as possible, and we think that cuts should be elsewhere. So, and not only for that, you know, schools are also popular. So it's going to be very difficult to move away from ring fencing. You talked about the benefit cap there. Now, um, it looks like the cap, in effect, is going to lead to a letter in the same way that the uh, Bank of England's inflation target. Now, the, we're waiting on perhaps some of the details, but how likely is it to really work in practice and how much of it is a rhetorical device? Well, I think, interestingly, the government this week, following Labour recently, have come up with these efforts to suggest they've got the welfare budget or they want to control the welfare budget. Why? Well, because the same opinion polls that uh, suggest the NHS is extremely popular also suggests that the welfare budget isn't extremely popular. So what Labour were looking at a couple of weeks ago was trying to constrain the welfare budget by not by actually reducing the benefits of everybody, anybody now receiving them, but by reducing the number of people receiving benefits. So, for example, by pushing up pay so that fewer people qualify for in-work benefits. What the Conservatives are doing is something slightly different, Conservatives, Liberal Democrats in the coalition. What they're suggesting is that if you aim off for the protected part of welfare, the other half, roughly, that for that there would be a, effectively a limit a, uh, attached to it. And as you rightly say, um, if there was a risk that the government was going to go over that limit, then a letter would be written to the Chancellor, presumably by the Office for Budget Responsibility, to say that this was going to happen. It's not clear what would then happen, by the way. I mean, they, you know, after all, uh, the uh, Chancellor has to put, live in a world in which the Bank of England writes him letters when uh, they miss their inflation targets and you know, uh, that's it. So, uh, you know, what would happen? I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it opens the possibility, but hard to imagine, that the government would have to say, well, we're knocking 10% off everybody's benefits next year because we uh, over 
ran last year, I think it would be viewed over a number of years. And, of course, that gives extraordinary flexibility. So is it a rhetorical device? I think for both the, both the government and the Labour Party, it is. It's a, what it's doing is saying, we want to get tough on benefit. Here's a way of doing it, and hoping that that's what the electorate hears, not worrying too much about the detail. Is it necessary to sign up to some element of austerity and some element of a benefit cap being tough on these issues? Is it necessary to sign up to those to be heard in British politics? Does Labour have to do that to get a hearing from the electorate? Well, certainly that's what they think they do. I mean, all the tortured effort that went into Labour coming up with a new position on welfare, I think is evidence that their pollsters have told them that welfare benefits are not popular. And although I think you know, the, 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 the issue of what you do with pensioners is very complicated because their numbers are growing, and although you can uh, delay retirement age, the truth is, in the end, it seems that all parties are very worried about pensioners who vote heavily and you know what you can do about them. So I think what all the parties are now trying to do is say, we're tougher than they are on welfare, but without giving too much detail about what they do in the future if in the end uh, spending on the unprotected part of welfare overshot uh, the imagined cap. Is there a, a gap, going back to the main thrust of the spending review, is there a gap between... The rhetoric and the rhetoric and the reality, sorry, of of Osborne that um, people have talked about. He's made a quite a confident um, speech um, presentation, but the numbers don't quite add up. And some people have referenced Gordon Brown's approach while he was in the Treasury. Um, is there that gap? Is he being more bullish than he has um, the figures to be able to be? Well, remember, George Osborne, like Gordon Brown, uh, and indeed Alistair Darling between them, um, are all basing their future plans for spending and taxes on um, a deficit reduction policy, which I'm pretty sure the opposition's more or less signed up to, perhaps not quite so fast, but the same kind of thing. And they're signed up to that. But on every year when they look forward, they're factoring in growth or at least the growth the Office for National, the, the Office for Budget Responsibility uh, suggests is going to happen. And of course, in many years recently, uh, the OBR has proved, everybody indeed has proved optimistic. So, in that sense, if growth didn't turn out at the relatively optimistic levels that are now suggested into the future, then Osborne, like Darling and uh, Gordon Brown, would find themselves faced with a less rosy picture and therefore a choice between deeper cuts or tax increases. One of the most interesting things about the spending review is that there's a very strong perception that after 2015-16, whoever wins the election, taxes will have to go up because the unprotected parts of public spending simply can't be cut anymore. Okay. Thanks very much, Dan Travis. You're off the hot seat.